0: Well, we'd like to welcome our visitors here today, including Kathy Toomey. Did it? <laughs> I don't know why I used her maiden name. She's been married for, what, 15, 18 years now, but <clears throat> I'll get it one of these days. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this morning, we want to look at verses 29 through 31. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these moments that we have to meditate upon your word, to consider the important truths that are found in this passage, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach and instruct each one of us, Lord, that that we might better understand our relationship to you and the things of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In this section, Paul, beginning in verse 29, Paul is giving some more advice, really chapter 7, he's chock full of advice And now he's giving some more advice to Christians in Corinth in light of the distressing times that was to come upon them. And you know, in light of the financial meltdown in America and across the world globally, uh, and troubles that we might be facing down the road, some of the advice here given to the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago might be more pertinent to us than we think. So let's consider what Paul said. Verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. The word that he uses for time here means not time as the succession of minutes or chronology, but rather a season. And the season that he's speaking about here is a season of trial, a season of trouble, a season of persecution that was about to break out in that region of the world. And look in verse 26, he says, I suppose, therefore, that it is good for the present distress. So he was talking about a present distressing kind of time in which the believers in the first century were facing. And that word distress, we noted last time in verse 26, uh, rather the word present can either mean present, something that is ongoing at the moment, or it can mean something that is impending, something that is either presently occurring or is just around the corner. And so there was distress that was either beginning, as Paul wrote this, or it was about to come upon the Corinthian believers. And so Paul says in verse 29, the time is short. And that word for short means to wrap up, to conclude, or to contract, or to abridge. And the tense that he uses here implies that it has already become abridged. And that's the condition they were in right now. In other words, persecution uh, was upon them. And the time is short before... The shoe would fall, so to speak. And so though they may be experiencing comparative or relative ease at the moment, Paul was aware of the political climate in the Roman Empire in the first century and Paul was aware of the fact that horrible, violent outbreak against Christianity was right around the corner. Maybe there were laws that were just about to uh, the Senate in Rome was debating at that time, and, and Paul knew that it was about to be stamped by the king's ring and it was about to become law, and he knew what that meant for believers. Severe persecution was right around the corner, very difficult, distressing times they were about to face. And you know, I think. We ought to begin to read the handwriting on the wall in our country as well. All the government has to do is rewrite the hate laws. And I could be in jail tomorrow. It's happened in Canada already. It's happening in Europe. And America can't be far behind that new trend. Now, thank God we're not being persecuted in this country, as is the case in many other places around the globe. But let's not be naive. There is an ongoing war even in this country against our Christian heritage and against Christianity and against some of the basic fundamental truths of the Bible and there is a movement to wipe out any remembrance of our heritage any uh, symbol of Christianity whatsoever uh, from the common uh, from the streets in this country it began by removing prayer then there were laws passed about uh, avoiding religious talk in the workplace Then the manger scenes were made illegal. Track distribution has become illegal in in many uh, city streets. And the television routinely portrays Christians, born-again Christians, as backwards, snake-handling bigots. And so there is an undercurrent in this country to restrict, confine, and eventually regulate the church out of existence. And the time may be shorter than we think. Now, I don't want to be an alarmist. We don't know. Maybe the Lord will give us several more decades. uh, But things are changing so rapidly. The time may be short when we're no longer able to preach what the Bible says about the gay lifestyle, about women in the ministry, or about spanking children, or some other things that are uh, plainly revealed in the Bible. The time may be short when uh, Christian churches, if they don't bow before the the mandates of the government of newly passed laws, we could lose our tax-free status. We could be regulated right out of existence and forced underground. And so Paul was trying to prepare the the Christians in Corinth because he could see the handwriting on the wall in Rome. And we too would be well to, to be prepared and to think about what it might involve in our lives and in our country and in our family. And so what Paul is doing in this chapter is he is encouraging his readers in the first century to take into consideration the spirit of the age, what the Germans call Zeitgeist. How did I do in that pronunciation, Uli? (laughs) Probably not too good. But it meant the spirit of the age. In other words, in the Roman Empire, uh, the tide was turning against Christianity. And this whole chapter is dealt with Paul's advice in light of that fact. And so he deals with issues of the household relating to the first century, whether you're single or married or, or whether you're divorced or whether you're a household servant or slave. Uh, his basic counsel to everyone in the first century in that setting was basically the same. Abide in the same calling that you're in right now. In other words, in light of the impending distress that was about to fall upon the Roman Empire, and believers in particular, this was not the time to make life transforming decisions. And so Paul is basically challenging believers, wherever they are, to basically sit tight until the storm is past. If you're single, he says in this chapter, don't seek a wife. If you're married, don't seek to change that. If you're a slave, stay put. And again, remember, he made sure that he, he, he made it clear that this was advice and not a command. He said to the servants, you know, if you can get free and, it's, and things look favorable, then by all means do so. Or if you are single and, and you, feel it, you feel compelled to get married, you can get married. But notice he said in verse 28, but I warn you, you will have trouble in the flesh. This is not the time to get married and try to settle down and have uh, five or six kids to take care of when the persecution was about to fall so severely upon the church. So Paul gives some advice, and the advice that he gives in this chapter is in light of the time, in light of the fact that the time is short. in light of the fact that the times were changing in the Roman Empire, and their attitudes towards Christianity was changing. And so Paul gives us some advice. In light of the changing attitudes, believers need to have some change of attitudes as well, some change of focus, and perhaps some change of behavior. And that's what Paul is is, uh, giving in this chapter. And what we're going to look at this morning is a little hard to swallow. It's not easy to digest the advice that Paul gives these believers. And what he's going to tell them is that in light of the present distress, what they needed was a Christian philosophy of life. Now, all believers need that, but they especially did. They needed to have it drilled into their minds and hearts that this world is not our home. And as John put it, love not the world, neither the things of the world, for all that is in the world is not of the Father. And so this made it very hard to take when we consider that Paul was talking about all their earthly possessions and even their family members included it all in the equation. And so he says in verse 28, but this I say, brethren, the time is short and it remaineth. Now, this little expression, it remaineth, uh, is to be understood in light of the, the fact that the time was short. So there's just a little time remaining. And in that time that remains, Paul is going to give some divinely inspired apostolic advice that they would do well to take heed to. And notice the first thing that Paul says at the end of verse 29. Here's the first piece of advice. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. Now be careful here. This is not advice to husbands in general. Paul is certainly not saying, uh, you know, take no thought for your family or your wife. The Bible is very clear about that in, in other portions of Scripture. This is not advice given to husbands in general. Rather, this is advice given in light of the present distress. In light of the fact that horrible persecution was about to break out. And Paul said here, They may not want to have heard it, but this is what he's saying. He's saying in light of the persecution, some of these Christian husbands may have to leave their families. They may be chased out of the city until the storm passes. And maybe that storm could last several years. Maybe the husband would have to flee for his life. Maybe he lost his job and and his family would be starving and the only way that he could provide for them was to go to another country perhaps and, and try to make some money and send it back to feed his family. So here was a married man who may have to live as though he was a single man away separated from his family. You know, it's likely that in some places in the Roman Empire, Christian men were forced to bow to a pagan deity or be chased out of town. Or even be killed. Now, no Christian would be able to do that. Even if it meant he'd have to be separated from his wife and his children that he loved. He would have to put Christ first. He couldn't put his family first. He had to put the Lord first. And so it would be very clear, the advice that Paul is giving here, he's not saying that this is the way it ought to be, the way Christians should live, but he's saying this is the way you may be forced to live in light of the present distress. Now, in times of persecution, the persecutors virtually always give a way out, an option. Bow to the idol, and you can stay with your family. And you can keep your job. And you won't have to worry about persecution or even death. Just bow to the idol and it'll be okay. Or... Refuse to recant, and you're in trouble. And you may be separated from your family. And your family may starve. And so here, the Roman Empire was, putting, uh, was about to put Christians under terrible choices that they had to make, that they were being forced to make. Now, they couldn't, as a spirit-filled believer, they couldn't recant their faith. They couldn't bow to an idol and so for many men, it required for them to, to be chased out of town and leave his family behind. Remember the advice Paul gave to the single men? He said, my advice is, in light of the present distress, this is not a good time to get married. If you do, you haven't sinned, but you shall have trouble in the flesh, he said. And this was the kind of trouble he was warning about. You may have to find yourself living as if you were, were not married. Because you're going to, you may be forced to, to choose Christ over your family. And you know, the Lord Jesus said, if you don't choose me over your family, you can't be one of my disciples. Heart-wrenching decisions that these believers might have been forced to make in light of the present distress. And look, he goes on. In verse 30, he says, And they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. Now the British might say, keep a stiff upper lip. And what Paul is encouraging believers here is to do is to restrain their emotions. Not to be overcome by emotions. Not to be led by their emotions. They were not to wallow in weeping and sorrow, but rather they were to remind themselves of the joy of the Lord that no man could take from them neither were they to be going overboard in mirth and rejoicing if the persecution missed their village. Because tomorrow it might be there. So those that were weeping needed to keep focused on things above and, and be remind themselves of the joy of the Lord that they had with the spiritual blessings in Christ. And those that were rejoicing now might need to be as those who don't rejoice. Don't be rejoicing over your earthly circumstances because they could change in a moment. You know, if our hearts are attached to the things of this world, whether it's people, our families, our possessions, our prestige, our position in the community. All of that could change in a, in a moment. And that's why Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he said, set your affections on things above, not on the things of the earth. In times of persecution, it would be easy for believers to notice the loss of everything. Maybe uh, the loss of a loved one, lost his life as a martyr, loss of his family members, loss of a, a job, loss of his house, and loss of all of his personal property. And it would be very easy for a believer in such circumstances to just sit down and weep uncontrollably because he was obsessed by earthly possessions. And that's where his heart was really attached. if our our emotions are really, truly attached to things above, if that's what we love with all of our heart, then taking the loss of earthly things will be a lot easier to bear. You see, no man can rob us of our joy in Christ. They can steal from us. They can take our possessions away. They can beat us. They can imprison us. They can chain us. But no man can take away our spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As the prophet said, though there's no fruit in the vine, yet will I rejoice. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Nobody can take that from the believer. Paul is warning believers, getting them ready. When we love the things of the world, we will weep uncontrollably when things of the earth don't go our way. The loss of earthly riches. And by the way, there were quite a few losses in earthly riches in the last week or so. In the stock market. There were probably a lot of folks weeping uncontrollably. But you see, when we love Christ with all of our heart and, and our affections are on our spiritual riches in Christ, we have riches that no man can ever take from us. And turn to Philippians chapter three. In Philippians chapter three and verse seven. Paul says he knew what it meant to suffer the loss of all things. He knew what it meant to be persecuted. He experienced it. And he writes for us in Philippians 3 and verse 7, But what things were gain to me, those things that were really gain in the world, all those earthly riches and that prestige and popularity that he had as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, those things that were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Paul knew firsthand what it meant to lose earthly things. But he was no loser. He saw himself as one who experienced infinite gain in the process of earthly loss. Yes, he lost his earthly trinkets, but he found the, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord. And you know, there are many things that we can become overly attached to in this life emotionally. And Paul's point was, not to allow ourselves to be emotionally attached to earthly things and earthly relationships, even our our friends and family members, because those are not permanent relationships. That could end at any time. And so we are to walk by faith and not by our feelings. And Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 7 to the believers facing the possibility of impending distress, he warns them, not to allow themselves to be overcome with emotion. Those that weep may have to be like those who weep not. And those who are rejoicing may have to be like those who are not rejoicing. You see, in Christ, from heaven's perspective, we have constant cause for true spiritual inward rejoicing. And if from heaven's perspective... Life on earth takes on a whole new meaning, a whole new perspective when we are see ourselves as seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now back in 1 Corinthians 7 again. And in verse 30, here's some other advice that Paul gives to the believers in light of the coming distress. He says at the end of the verse, "...and they that buy as though they possess not." Now, in times of persecution, there might be some wealthy believers who still have enough money to buy a brand new house and rejoice in it. And usually, that's a cause for rejoicing when the Lord provides a, a, a brand new house. But in that, those set of circumstances, it might not be such a cause of rejoicing. Or maybe the wealthy believers have enough money in the bank so they feel they don't have to worry like other poor believers do about the pending distress that was to come upon them. After all, they can rest upon their investment portfolio. Paul's advice is, be as those who possess not. In other words, don't put undue emphasis or reliance or trust upon your possessions. You could lose them. earthly possessions, no matter how vast our barns are filled with them, how how many possessions we possess, they're all temporal. They're all on loan from God and they could be taken away at any moment. And listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs 23. He says, "'Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine heart on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven.'" And this was the advice Paul was he was trying to prepare believers not to be so confident about all the things that they could buy, but rather have the attitude of those who didn't have enough money to buy those things. And if you do possess things in, the, in that day and age, make sure that you hold those possessions with wide open hands. Hold on to them very loosely because they aren't permanent. They could all be taken away. And I like what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10. He says, but we, as Christians, we have a better and a more enduring substance in heaven. Don't we? And the more we keep this in mind, and the more we really believe it, the more inclined we will be to hold on to our earthly trinkets with open, loose hands. So look at the categories that Paul listed here. The advice in three different areas. One, he mentions their wives' family members. Secondly, he mentions the things that they are emotionally attached to. And thirdly, he mentions their possessions. They all have reference to earthly relationships. That's the theme of this whole chapter, really. And so Paul has been telling believers in light of the coming distress, do not obsess over earthly relationships. Whether you're bond or free, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're married or single, have kids, you don't have kids, whether you have houses and possessions or not, those things are all temporal. We take none of them with us. And in times of persecution, you better get prepared to lose some of those things. And so as believers, Paul was trying to prepare those folks for what was coming. And He wanted them to learn to dwell in heavenly places, to learn to live above their circumstances, and to set their affections on things above, not on the things of the earth. And you know, that's what God wants for us today as well if all of our affections and emotions are tied up in earthly things and earthly relationships and families and and people that we love and organizations that we love and possessions and all the rest, if that's where our hearts are attached, we're setting ourselves up for an awful fall because that could change the drop of a hat. And so Paul's advice here to believers living in the times when persecution was right around the corner, Paul was challenging these believers to let go of those earthly things and to put them all on the altar of sacrifice, to leave them all in the Lord's hands and acknowledge that they all really ultimately belong to the Lord. They're not ours permanently. And to commit ourselves into the hands of a faithful Creator. Have you done that? Have I done that? With our loved ones? with our family, with our houses, our possessions. That's what Paul is challenging the believers in Corinth to do. And you know the three areas that he mentioned, family, the things that we're emotionally tied to in this life, and, and our, our earthly possessions, those are difficult areas to surrender to the Lord. But as the songwriter said, you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until... All on the altar you lay. Now back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul goes on to give them some more advice concerning uh, life in this world. They still lived in the world. And he says to them in verse 31, And they that use the world as not abusing it. And boy, what an important principle he lays before us here. The word world here speaks of a system, a world system, an orderly arrangement that includes the politics, the education, the economics, the philosophy, the society all around us. All of those systems are part of the world system, the world order, we might say. And as John tells us, they are all in opposition to the Father. And so the world also includes a world of economics. The world and the things of the world, as James puts it. And here Paul tells us, he tells the believers in Corinth as they were facing persecution, sure you have to use the things of the world and so do we today. And to use means to use as an instrument. Great definition. As Christians living in the world, we have to use as an instrument money, Food, clothing, housing, etc. We all live in a political environment as well. And so we have to use the laws that are around us and obey the man-made ordinances for the Lord's sake. Paul used his Roman citizenship for his own benefit. And there was certainly nothing wrong with that. That was the right thing to do for him. We live in a world system in which our children need to be educated and we need to take advantage of the educational system around us. We live in an economic environment. We need to use the the finances around us. But the difference here is that we are to use them as an instrument for serving God and glorifying the Lord. And Paul goes on to say, and not abusing them. Now, the word abuse here is an interesting Greek word that he uses. It's set up very similar to the English in that it it possesses uh, the, the core of the word is the same as use, only it has a little prefix in the front of it that intensifies it. And his point here is that, yes, we have to use the things of the world as an instrument to survive, etc., and to live our lives in this planet, but we are not to... Intensely use them. We are not to overindulge in the things of the world. We are not to go overboard. To live extravagantly, excessively, indulgently. You know, anything can be overdone. And that's his point here. Whether it's our relationship to the things of the world, our involvement in the things of the world, and our use of the things of the world, anything can be overdone. That's the warning that Paul gives. You know, it's possible for a Christian to get involved in politics, to run for office even, and to be a good politician. But it's wrong for politics to be your life. Christ is our life. It's possible for a a Christian to be involved in the educational systems around us. But it's wrong for education to be all-consuming. Christ is our life. It's possible for a believer, we all need a career, and it's possible for us to spend time advancing in our career, but it's wrong to abuse that and be preoccupied with our career so that our life is our career. And we all need money. But there's a difference between earning money to live and living for money. And that's the distinction that Paul is making here. Sometimes, yes, even as believers, we can be more concerned about our finances and our careers and our 401Ks and our cars and our fancy vacations and our homes than we are about our own spiritual lives. And so the things of the world are necessary for our survival. In fact, we ought to see the things that God provides as gifts. Every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And there, as Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. So the things of this life, we can and take them and use them and enjoy them and thank God for them, but as Christians, we ought to be very different in our mindset, in our heart attitude, than folks in the world. We are commanded not to love the world or the things of the world. We are commanded not to be preoccupied with the things of this world. And we are commanded to set our affection on things above. And so that's, in essence, that's what Jesus said when, remember, he said, take no thought which you shall eat or drink. All those earthly things. And we didn't mean that we don't ever think about supper and just don't forget about eating for the rest of our lives. I'm getting a little hungry right now. <laughs> but it does mean that our lives don't revolve around food and clothing and getting money and the things of the world. We're to use them. We need them. And outwardly, to others, observing, it might not, we might not look all that much different from an unsafe person. We both buy clothes. We both eat food. We both live in the world. We both have homes to live in. But inwardly, there ought to be a huge distinction in our attitude. As Christians, we ought to, we, thankfully, we can possess things, but they shouldn't possess us. We shouldn't live, live for things. We should use them in order to live so that we can serve God, so that we can be His witnesses here on earth. You know, in that sense, every born again believer ought to be a tent maker. Whatever our occupation is, it is simply a means of providing. <laughs> funds so that we can pay our bills, feed our family, put a roof over our heads, so that we can serve Christ, so that we can minister and share the gospel. We're all tent makers. Is that really the way we see ourselves, though? Is Christ really our life? Or do our lives revolve around the things of the world? And do we use the things of the world? Do we use our house for the service of Christ? Invite the neighbors over to share the gospel. Do we use our income in the service of Christ to support the ministry and the uh, missions around the world? Do we use our career as a mission field? Do we see, do we go to work on Monday morning in a Terrible drudgery? Or do we go there with a smile on our face praying that God would enable us to be a witness and maybe to share the Gospel with someone? We can use the world. We're commanded to use the world. We need to use the world just to survive, but we are also commanded not to abuse it. Not to put earthly things on a higher plane than our spiritual lives. Paul goes on to say back in 1 Corinthians 7, the end of verse 31 here's the reason why for here's here's his reason for giving all of this advice that he does for for or because the fashion of this world passeth away strong's defined this word fashion schema he defined the word as that which strikes the fences It's an interesting way of looking at it. It means the outward form of something or that which strikes the senses. And you know, the world system has a very appealing outward appearance. A form that is striking that belies the reality. The reality is that the world system is an ungodly system. Paul tells us that Satan is the god of this world. John tells us that nothing in this world system is of the Father. And James tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So we should be on guard when it comes to how we live in this world system around us. And Paul tells us here that this whole world system is transitory. It's passing away. The world as we know it will one day be smashed by the coming of Jesus Christ when He returns in power and great glory and He smashes and grinds the kingdoms of this earth into powder and causes them to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And all the things of this world, Peter tells us, will one day melt with a fervent heat. And James tells us that we brought nothing into the world and we certainly can carry nothing out. And so in light of all this, how foolish is it of us to put such emphasis on that which is transitory? that which is presently in the process of passing away. The clock is already ticking on the demise of this world system. And so Paul's point here is that as Christians, we ought not to dote over the earthly relationships, whether it's our marital relationship, our social relationships, our financial relationships, family relationships, our relationships to the organizations of the world, etc., It's all passing away. It's all for this life only. It won't be like that in glory forever and ever and ever. And so we are fools for setting our hearts on that which is in the process of passing away, Paul says. And if the believers in Corinth still insisted on setting their affections on all these earthly relationships, they would never be able to handle the persecution that Paul knew was impending. So we are to look... At the things that are not seen. We are to set our vision on the eternal things. And you know the advice Paul gave to the Corinthians in the first century is just as relevant to us today. They were in imminent danger of a present distress. But, somebody's, is in present distress. They were in danger of present distress, but even though we may not realize the danger that we're in spiritually, we really are. I know, sometimes the world system doesn't want us to hear what God has us (laughs) to... We face a world that isn't any different than the world the believers in the first century faced. It doesn't think any more highly of Jesus Christ today than it did in those days, even in America. And so it is sad beyond description for the unsaved to realize that all the things that they love, all the things that their heart has been attached to could be lost in a time of crisis because that's all the unsaved have. But Paul wanted the believers to live above that. They shouldn't, we shouldn't be living like the world. And as we think about what Paul is saying here, we should begin to realize in a fresh way that how fleeting are all the trinkets of this life. And it ought to cause us today to be able to refocus and set our affection on Christ and things above and to keep our eyes on Jesus and to continue running the race with patience and maybe even set our spiritual house in order. And so what Paul is really doing to the Corinthians is he's giving them a crash course on the message of the cross. You know how we learn about the cross? Little by little, gradually. It takes years. When we're first saved, we thank the Lord that Jesus died on that cross. And He paid for all of our sins. And we're grateful and we're rejoicing in that. And as time goes on, then we begin to realize other things that not only did Jesus die for me, but I died with Him. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. Here Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, notice this, the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Now here Paul tells us that every born-again believer has already been crucified with Christ to the world and the world unto us. But sometimes it takes years for that to really sink in. For us to understand in a deeper way what we may have understood only superficially when we were first saved. We may have an intellectual understanding that yes, I died with Christ positionally when I was born again, but it often takes many years for the seriousness of this doctrine to really sink into our hearts and become life-transforming and for us to learn to apply the cross to all kinds of situations in our lives. You know, when we're first saved, we learn to apply the cross to things that are outwardly outwardly evil. You know, somebody, we just get saved and somebody invites us to this terrible X-rated movie and, and it's easy to apply the cross to that and say, no, I, I died to that. That's not for me, thank you. But then it, it's difficult for us to see how we need to apply the cross sometimes to, to skiing or baseball or knitting or whatever else it is that we really like to do. Something that might seem neutral. You know, when our friend has free tickets to the World Series and it's on the Lord's Day. You're going to, who are you going to choose? But then the Lord needs to apply that cross to other situations that seem exceptionally good. Our boss selects you for a promotion. In Pine Lodge, Montana, and you are going to be the head of that regional office and your standard of living will go through the roof. The the real estate is so much cheaper there and you're going to get a huge pay raise and now you'll be able to send your kids to whatever kind of college you want. You'll be living on Easy Street. But there's no church in Pine Lodge, Montana. There's no Bible-believing church there. You see, we need to learn to apply the cross to all kinds of situations. And for most of us, for us living in this country at least, the Lord needs to teach us the message of the cross little by little. Applying it here, applying it there, applying it in all kinds of situations until God gradually weans us away from the world and the world's trinkets and the ways of the world. And we learn little by little that we are crucified with Christ. But you know what happens? when you live in a place where persecution breaks out, you get a crash course on the message of the cross. And those believers in Corinth were about to get a crash course on how to apply the cross to daily lives. Some of them might be forced to bow before a pagan idol or be separated from their family or lose their home and their job and have to run into the wilderness for their lives. So what are they going to do? Are they going to bow to the idol and cling to their family and their possessions and all those earthly relationships? Or are they going to cling to the old rugged cross and suffer the loss of all things? You see, that causes some believers to grow up in a hurry in those sorts of situations. And so in light of that, that's what was coming. In light of that, Paul told the believers there that they may need to really put all of these earthly relationships and hold them with an open hand unto the Lord. Say, Lord, I know what's coming, and if you want to take these from me, they came from you, they're gifts from you, I turn them over to you, and I just trust my life into the hands of a faithful Creator. Are we ready to sacrifice for the cause of Christ? Are we going to cling to that which is earthly? Or are we going to cling to the old rugged cross? Little by little, God needs to teach us the message of the cross. You know, as Christians, we are standing on a rock-solid foundation. Not the sinking sands of the world system that's around us and all that the world has to offer. And so as believers, we need to learn that experientially, and apply it to our lives that that we're different from the world now that we're born again. And we ought to be standing on a solid rock and occupied with things above, things that are eternal and unshakable. And put all these earthly things on the back burner. And learn, as Paul learned, the hard way for me to live is Christ. We may be called upon to hand over some of these tre- earthly cherished treasures for the sake of Jesus Christ. But our Savior is worth it. He's worth suffering for, he's worth experiencing the loss of earthly things for, he's worth losing our lives. In fact, the Lord Jesus said, If you're unwilling to let go, you can't be my disciple. Tough language. And in light of the changing atmosphere in our country for the next several decades, our kids, they have to face some really tough choices. God help them. Help us to get them ready. That's what Paul was doing to the Corinthians. We need to follow that same route. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for every portion of it. And, Lord, we thank you for the cross of Calvary that is the answer to all of our problems in this life. Lord, as we acknowledge that we died with Christ and are alive unto God, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be prepared for difficult decisions that we might be forced to make. And, Father, help us to be faithful. And, Lord, we pray for any here who have never accepted Christ as their personal Savior. Lord, that even today they might see the importance of eternal life as opposed to the fashion of this world that passeth away. We pray, Lord, that even today might be the day of salvation for them. And we'll thank and praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.